Gospel Church on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. You may be live streaming at WAGP.net or listening locally through our 100,000-watt FM station here centered out of Beaufort, South Carolina. We welcome you, however you're listening. And if you happen to be a first-time listener, we will, by God's grace, for the next hour, be answering your questions. Maybe there's a particular issue or subject that you're looking for biblical clarification on or application to some specific need or challenge in your life and ministry. If we can be of help, again, the local uh, 843 South Carolina Exchange, 843-525-1859, 843-525-1859, or toll-free at 877, the call letters WAGP980. You can also email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. When you call, you can go on the air live. We do give preference to live callers and dictations uh, that come through. Some don't want to go on the air, uh, but they're happy to dictate their question. We'll help you however we can by God's grace. Well, let's go ahead, Walter, and we'll get started this morning. All right. Good morning, sir. Our first question comes from Jen out of San Antonio, Texas. She writes, my husband and and I are in the church that has turned apostate. Many issues here, but what can we do? He and I were youth teachers and we taught the youth verse by verse. Now this has been taken away from us. The pastors want a female elder to take over and my husband wants to stay because he wants to keep speaking the truth. He also preaches once a month because he wants the church to hear it, but it seems to be a losing battle. Everyone is offended by his teaching because we have homosexuals and people who are gay affirming leaders. What can I do for my husband to help him, and how do I keep going without losing my mind? Well, this is a fantastic question, and Jen, let me just say it's time for you and your husband to leave. But I probably would say a stay for that one last sermon. Let him do a swan song sermon in terms of why you are leaving. You are right now in violation of clear scriptural instruction. It's one thing to have gay, lesbian, transgender people attending your church. It's quite another thing to have people affirming that lifestyle. And this, sadly, is where many churches across the nation have gone Churches that were once evangelical, solid, Bible-believing churches now are rolling into apostasy. They are departing from the faith. And God warns in 1 Timothy that in the latter times, men would indeed depart from the faith. It's articular, meaning the body of truth we know as Scripture. And so when a church gives credence to what God calls an abomination, unnatural and wicked, they have stepped over a clear line. And by your participation, especially it seems like from what you're describing that your husband is obviously he's in some kind of a leadership position to be able to speak once a month. 
he is in violation of Scripture, and he's endorsing their evil by his participation. Think your way through this. Paul says, and I just turned to Romans 16, 17. Now, I urge you, brothers or brothers and sisters, it's, it's generic, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. I mean, just think about Romans, uh, just the letter that he had just written to them, and this is in his conclusion. Um, in the letter, he says, for instance, that God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire one toward another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. So God has just described uh, homosexual behavior degrading, degrading passions. He called it unnatural. Um, he, he, he describes it as an indecent act. Um, that's pretty strong language that God uses. And, and of course, this leads to a depraved mind. A depraved mind, when you begin to endorse these kinds of things, it goes to another level of falling away. Um, adikamos is a word that was used of metal that was tested, and the impurities would be removed. And, of course, when the alpha prefix is put on it, it changes the meaning, but it basically means an upside-down mind. Uh, where you call good evil and evil good. Jesus said to the church at Revelation, in Revelation, one of the seven churches, I have a few things against you because you have those who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak uh, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Uh, Balak knew he couldn't rightfully curse the people of Israel. Balaam knew he couldn't rightfully curse the people of Israel, so he said to the king, well, look, um, I can't curse him, but let's get God to curse him and get some of your beautiful women and seduce those men and let them commit adultery. And, and of course, this is what was happening in one of these churches. There was moral laxity, and God says this is evil, and you're in a church that is evil. And so Paul will say to Timothy, if someone advocates a different doctrine, a different teaching that doesn't agree with sound words, you, that person is conceited. Um, you're to separate from such people. So the Bible teaches such a thing as biblical separation, and you guys are not practicing it. Let me tell you in what is happening. Um, when you, uh, Jim, uh, or Jen, Jen, your husband, I don't know his name, um, when, when your husband preaches a sermon— Basically, what you are doing is you're giving endorsement to that church because you'll meet people out in the community and they say, oh, yeah, I know that guy. He, he, he's, a, he's an elder. He preaches over at such and such a church. He's a fine man. Maybe that's where we should go. And so you're helping to further the evil that that church is teaching. And so your rationale is, well, you know, I'm going to have an impact here and keep telling them the truth. Your impact is gone. It's gone at this point. You've already said they don't like you. They hate you. That's not a reason to stop preaching the truth, but it's a reason to stop preaching the truth in that church because these people are not practicing 
what God says is sound teaching, healthy teaching. It's the word healthy that we get our word hygiene from. And you're to turn away from them. You are to separate from such uh, people. And so, you know, I know sometimes people reason, well, we've been going here, our family for a hundred years and my dad's buried out back and grandma and grandpa are buried out back. And look, if they could get up and leave, they would, they can't, but you should. And cause you're in violation of scripture. So give a swan song, give a final message and address this issue directly that you're not against LGBTQIA people. But the most unloving thing we can do as a church is to affirm this behavior because we are helping to lead such people to hell. We're going against the clear teaching of Scripture. And by your example and your modeling, you're helping to contribute to the problem. So leave and encourage other like-minded people to leave as well. And go to passages like Romans 16, 17, 1 Timothy 6, 3, and 4, Titus 3, 10, and 11, or Jesus' address in Revelation 2, 14, and 15. Those would just be a sampling of biblical texts that teach us biblical separation. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl on today's Bible line, Let's go to the phone lines, Pastor Carl. I believe we have Ed from New Jersey. Good morning, Ed. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead, Ed. I'm trying to hear you. All right. Um, well, I think but, we... but he has a question that he dictated. He had a question he dictated, well, Pastor Carl. Let's just go Carl. to it. Okay, so his question was um, about multi-site or satellite churches. Do you have any feedback for him? Yeah, it's a fair question, and ideally, I don't think it's the best idea. I was just speaking to... Dr. Owen Strand, who spoke at our church on Sunday, and we were discussing this whole thing. And, you know, I told him we had a couple of uh, satellite uh, campuses, so to speak. So we have the uh, conviction that there's one church, but we have more than one location. Where does that come from? Well, it actually comes from Scripture, if you think about it. They didn't have church buildings in the early church. It's, It's quite a while before... There is a time frame where we have like a formalized meeting place for the people of God where they all come together. So where did they meet? Typically in homes. Not always. Sometimes they met on the side of a river, wherever they could. But typically they met in homes. But then they would come together, all the various elders who were supervising those various assemblies. They'd come together sometimes for the apostles' teaching sometimes for maybe the lead pastor's teaching, because not every pastor, not every elder is a teaching elder. And Paul makes that clear. He distinguishes between those who simply rule and those who give their attention to the preaching and teaching of the word. And I think you even see this in the seven letters to the Revelation, where Jesus addresses an angelos, a messenger. He's not speaking to a literal angel, but sometimes the word angel or angelos is used of humans. For instance, John the Baptist is called an angel in Greek. And in most translations, other than English, they will translate it that way, and they leave it up to the reader to figure out, oh, well, this is not a literal angel, that he's speaking here of a messenger, because that's what the word means. And his disciples are called angeloi in the plural. Uh, I got a cross-stitch once from a church in Ukraine, and they said, to the angel of the church in Beaufort. 
they were calling me a pastor, an angel. And that's what Jesus is addressing. So there's often what we might today call a senior pastor, but he's not, you know, um, exclusively the leader. There's a plurality of leadership and he's a leader amongst equals. So I say all that to say that the concept is not totally foreign to the New Testament. Do I think it's ideal? No. So for instance, we took over a church in Gray, South Carolina. And if you're living in Hampton or near Ridgeland, uh, Jasper County, those places, we have a campus in Gray's that you might want to consider. It was down to, you know, four or five members who were left. They were going to close their doors again. They were closed one time, I think, for a period of 20 years. They didn't know what to do. So we took it over, and we have live music there on Sunday morning. We have a pastor there most Sundays, and yet we live stream. We go with the teaching when the sermon begins. Do I think that's ideal? No. If you could give me some solid Bible teaching pastor. Look, I had like over 200 resumes once trying to find a Bible teaching pastor. And the pathetic thing was, is that most of them didn't teach the word. They couldn't send me a sermon because I heard so many. And I thought, what are they teaching in these schools? And so listen, 50,000 churches, 50,000, according to the Wall Street Journal, are scheduled for closure in the next five years. And churches might have an opportunity. I was up in Wells Beach, Maine a couple years ago, and all these churches were closed. Uh, One had actually been turned into a gift store, but all these churches were closed, no more meetings. I I don't know who is cutting the grass, um, but this is what's happening across the nation. And they're turning them into bar rooms, into playhouses, gift shops, just about anything you can think of. And so it might be an opportunity to have some kind of a witness since there's no pastor available. Listen, there, there is um, those who are in tune with seminaries in the country. The, uh, the, the share of potential new pastors is diminishing at a rate that we never thought of because we hadn't seen this before in America. We saw the first great awakening, the second great awakening. We saw this movement where new seminaries were starting. Now they're shrinking. So what are they doing? Many of them are compromising. They're letting women in because now women can be pastors and they need market share to be able to pay for the facilities, to pay for the uh, opportunity to... uh, keep their doors open. This is gross compromise. So all I'm saying is there's opportunity, but there's a lot of these churches that do multi-site campuses that, in my view, they're an abomination. Uh, Example, Andy Stanley. He's got a false message. T.D. Jakes, another example. They have a false message. And so they open these multi-campus sites, and I think, in my judgment, it's driven on greed, it's not driven on a pure motivation to reach people in a community. Would they think about opening a church in, in Graniteville, uh, South Carolina, or Gray's? No, Gray's. I mean, we're out in the middle of a field, it feels like. We're out in the country. Oh, well, we can't make any money out there. That's, that's a foolish place. Well, do those people who live in that country area within a five-mile radius, does God care about them? He sure does, and they need a place where they can come and worship and meet other Christians and hear the gospel, some for the first time, and uh, to hear a sermon that's based on Scripture. So you've got to look at this very, very carefully because there's mixed motives in the whole movement. Appreciate the question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning. 
We'll go back to the phone lines. I believe we have Alberto from Savannah. Good morning, Alberto. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead, Alberto. Yeah, go ahead. We're listening. Hello? Yes, Alberto. We are listening. We can hear you. Maybe maybe he can't hear us. Maybe he can't hear us, Pastor Carl. All right. All right. We'll go to... So uh, we'll keep it going, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Joseph. He writes, Pastor Brogy, the latter days are upon us. Smart cities are becoming worldwide. They are going digital with currency. They are trying to implement implants of digital chips within the right hand or face biometrics. How are God's people supposed to buy and sell if we refuse to get the implants? This would be a great service, and I believe what you teach all from the scriptures. Thanks for what God has called you to do. Well, it's a good question, and uh, I think it might not even be a digital implant in the near future. You know, the Biden administration has made a commitment uh, in next year to begin to implement digital money. Now, whether that happens or not, I don't know. There's obviously uh, candidates that are running for president that are already addressing this issue. It's becoming commonplace in Western, uh, Western Europe. And there are some cities across China, that's the only way you can make a purchase. So we call central bank digital money, C-D-B-M, central, oh, C-B-D-M, central bank digital money. And what that basically means is we become a cashless society. So cash will become irrelevant. And if you think about it, most people today more and more don't use cash. You're lucky if you can find a, a dollar in my wallet most of the time. I very rarely ever call, use cash. I use credit cards. I pay them off 100% in full every month. I've never paid a dime of interest to a credit card company. Um, and so I pay them off in full every month. Now, I minus things out of the checkbook like I'd written a check or minus cash out of the checkbook so I know where I'm at and I never spend money I don't have. But I also make money off the credit card companies. They're typically gaming that they're going to make money off of you. I make money off of them uh, because I get the rebates and everything else. Lay all that aside. We're going to a new level where... Many people will be, oh, yeah, well, I don't need cash anyway. I just use my credit card. Will they implant a chip? Well, they have in some places, like in Sweden. But the newest thing that Amazon just revealed in the last few weeks is they take your hand and they put it over a special light screener. And just like your fingerprint is unique, your hand your, your hand uh, vein system is a unique creation of God. And so what will happen is now in 500 whole, full, whole food stores in America, 500 plus, you go in there, you don't have to pay with cash, you don't have to pay with a credit card, you can just take your hand and put it over the screen, and it reads the veins and everything that you've registered with a particular group that they keep on file, and it immediately is removed from your bank account. Now you can see the downside of this. The downside is that it will control maybe our behavior, and we enter into what I alluded to uh, a few weeks ago, a digital prison. I did a whole sermon on this about a year ago, um, if you're of interest, where I talked about you know the Great Reset, and I spoke about a digital reset uh, in terms of money. I talked about in not only an economic reset, but a governmental reset and a religious reset. And we're moving towards that. What we're seeing today are just the presets. And so, look, if it came to in a year where I couldn't buy anything, 
because we are cashless. And I think what will happen is it will unfold. They'll say, well, you have, you know, six months to use your money, or you can turn it in today and we'll give you 110%. Oh, that's a motivator. Uh, And then maybe after six months, if you don't turn it in, it will only be worth 80% of its face value. Oh, that's uh, discouraging. And it will come to the point where it will be worthless. And so I think these are presets for the coming antichrist. Would there be anything wrong with you purchasing something with a digital chip in your hand? Or again, I don't think that's going to be necessary in light of the latest technology. They'll just screen your hand and the vein system in it. And that's how you'll buy and sell things uh, through that. And it gives the government total control. Because, of course, there are some people with highly evil motives led by the World Economic Forum. Oh, you've already filled up your gas tank three times this month. Sorry, you can't travel any further using gas. See, they're in total control. Or you've already bought five steaks. Your family has a limit of, uh, uh, of five, so you can't buy six, seven, and eight. And so you can see how they can really control all under the banner of climate control, the green movement, and all these other things that they are using. And Klaus Schwab has you know, worked closely with the World Health Organization that is now saying that you know, the climate changes, as they call it, that are happening across the world are a huge problem for health issues. And so you've got all these nations now working together and moving towards digital money. So nothing technically wrong with buying through a scanner. Nothing technically wrong with that. The wrong part is when there is prescribed to it some kind of a mark for it to work, where if you don't have a mark, and it may not be some you know, number attached to some scan, it may literally be an etching. In fact, I would tend to argue for that, that there will be an etching put on your skin because that seemingly is what the Greek text in the book of Revelation indicates. And so with that, and I, and I think maybe we're even being progressively um, put in a place where this is becoming more and more natural. Tattoos have just become, you know, the next thing. And, and so here is wisdom. I'll let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beasts for the number of a, a man is that of a man and, and his number is 666. And so the scripture says that, no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark. And so the word here for mark refers to an etching. Literally, that's what it refers to. So my guess is, is that, of course, this is post-rapture. Uh, and so if you're a Christian, you need not worry. And you need not worry either, even if someone were a post-tribulationist, which is an errant view, but even if someone were you're not going to be tricked into taking the mark of the beast. It's a conscious, willful decision that people will make to renounce Christ and give allegiance to the Antichrist. So there's no trickery involved here. As you read the New Testament, it's clear that this is a decision that people make in their hearts to follow the Antichrist. Now, how far down the road will we go in terms of these presets before the rapture takes place? Only God knows. We may in a year, two years, three years, be buying things digitally and cash will be obsolete. We don't know. But what we do know is there will come a time where you will not be able to buy or sell anything without the mark of the beast. But you can see how things are being set up where you can economically control the world 
through uh, a non-cashless society? Anyway, it's a great question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning, we're going to go back to the phone lines. I believe we have Mary. Uh, Good morning, Mary. You are live with Pastor Carl. What is your question? Okay, good morning, Pastor Carl. Um, My question is, um, I work with a person who's also a friend of mine. We're not very close friends, but we're friends. And she... um, uh, Leaves in the occult, and I think she has some activity along those lines also. And I was wondering, I am a Christian, and she knows that. She knows it because I've told her she sees it in my actions. Um, me, as a Christian, how do I relate with, to someone or with someone who does um, practice that type of um, activity? No, it's a great question. So people are saved out of the occult. Class, an example, when Paul's preaching in Ephesus, uh, he preaches the gospel, and it's a city that is covered over in idolatry. In fact, so many people are one to the Savior that there's a riot that's initiated by many of the salesmen of these small little uh, icons that they sell of the goddess Diana, or she's also known as Artemis. And so they have uh, this huge, huge um, gathering in a theater, and the people for over two hours are saying, great is Artemis. And, of course, they're very upset because Paul is causing the, the, uh, the, the sales to, uh, to crash. And so he preaches the gospel there, and there's wonderful conversion that takes place. And interestingly, we're told that um, the people are saved out of the occult. Listen to this. I'm reading now. I just turned to Acts 19. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. What practices? Contextually, occult practices. And many of those who practice magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So they didn't say, well, look, we've got all this expensive occult paraphernalia. Let's sell it and we, you know, we'll tithe it to the work of the Lord. No, they, they destroy it. That's the right thing to do with evil objects. If you're a dope dealer and you're converted, you don't sell your remaining stash and tithe it to the Lord. You burn it. You destroy it. A young man came to me years ago and he was involved in the heavy metal rock music. And when he showed me some of the albums, and they were albums back then, so this is an old illustration from the 90s, but I still remember him coming into my office with this stack of records. And I said, just, just look at these people. Look at the occult symbols that they've painted on the album, that they've tattooed on their skin. You have opened yourself up into the occult. And he was newly converted, and I, he said, well, I can, I can sell this. I said, you don't sell it, you destroy it. Now, he came to me at church the next Sunday with a big smile on his face. He said, I destroyed it. I said, great. What did you do with it? He said, I threw it into the river. I said, well, best not to pollute, but at least it's gone. So I say all this to say that your attitude needs to be compassionate towards this woman because she's lost. If Paul came into the city of Ephesus and he reasoned, this place is covered over in idolatry and magic and the occult practices, I'm getting out of here. No one would have ever been saved. So he cared compassionately. But your friend has to ask and answer this question. 
Is the Bible true? Is the Bible the only book that God wrote? And if you will call Search the Scriptures, I will send you a free booklet. Or if you live locally, come by and pick it up. I don't know where she's calling from. Um, people call across the country every week, and but we can mail it to you. It's how to prove the Bible is true. It's a little a booklet I wrote. I actually wrote for Ken Ham in an apologetic series that Answers in Genesis did. And so I've taken that out. You can buy it on Amazon, but we'll give it to people for free who would like it. And it's how to prove the Bible is true. So listen, if the Bible is the only book God wrote, then it condemns these practices. Now, the deeds of the flesh of the sinful nature are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. There it is, sorcery. And he goes on in this list, and he makes it very clear, uh, as I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, people who live like this, have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. So I would say to your friend, if this book is true, then the Bible teaches that Christ, who's the only one who can get you into heaven, his word teaches through his apostles, whom he promised to have the inspired word of God on his behalf, it says you will never see the inside of heaven. Now, if this book is not true, it doesn't matter. If this book is true, nothing else matters. This becomes a critical issue. So you can write me off, but you are involved in what the Scripture calls sorcery. And there are scores of Old Testament passages and those in the New Testament like this that condemn this behavior. And the person might even call themselves a Christian. Well, there are people I meet who are involved in sorcery and palm reading and all kinds of things, tarot cards, and they say they're Christians. No, they're not. Again, if this is their practice, if this is the direction in their life, they're giving proof positive that they've met, never met the living Christ. And so you want to get her to think, is the Bible it's true? If it is, she now has a plumb line by which she can measure her behavior from. And the Bible is unique. There is no other book on the planet that God wrote except the Bible. He didn't write the Quran or the Upanishads or the Vedas or any other book you can think of. He only wrote the Holy Bible. And so remember, tell her everything you believe is based on something. Uh, everything that's spiritual is not spiritually good. Paul warns us in Ephesians of evil spiritual forces, principalities that are at work in the heavenly realm. You have entered, my friend, into the realm of the demonic, according to the Bible, and you're deceived. And the thing about deception is people who are deceived don't know they're deceived. So if the Bible's true, now they have a plumb line, and they can read it, and they can say, yes, I guess I've been in deception. And so just believing something doesn't make it true. You can believe something sincerely and be sincerely wrong. So that's how I would approach it. And I would say, guard yourself. Guard yourself. Watch over your heart with all diligence because from it flow the, um, the issues of life. So be careful, Mary, but be compassionate and try to present the gospel to her. But don't do anything whereby you go to one of her meetings or one of her uh, evil practice gatherings, you guard your own heart and the whole thing. Good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl, I believe we have Alberto back online one with us, Pastor Carl. Good morning, Alberto. Go ahead with your question. 
Yes, good morning, gentlemen. My question is in Genesis chapter 1, um, verse 3, verse 14 and 15, and the last part of verse 16. When God first created the dove, he said that there'd be light. That's the natural light. Then it says in verse 14 and 15, he said God created lights. He puts them in the firmaments. And then in verse 16, the last part, he said he also created the stars. So they all three refer to the same thing or are they separate different types yeah, of Yeah, di- different things. So what I would recommend you do, Alberto, is go to search the scriptures. If you don't have the app, then download the app. Just go to the app store, type in search the scriptures. If you have a laptop or computer, you can obviously do it that way. And listen to my message here on Genesis 1. In fact, I have, I think, three messages on the first chapter. And I work through this very, very carefully. So it's a fair question. So if you know I've preached a book of the Bible, and I think you've been around long enough because you call from Savannah, if I remember, then um, you know I've preached Genesis. Go listen to that message on Genesis, and your question will be answered. Good question. Let's go to the next. Uh, I could spend a lot more time on that, Alberto, but you're a smart guy, and you can do this, and the questions are just stacking up. So let's go to the next one. All right, uh, Pastor Carl, our next question comes in as a live dictation from Stephanie out of Portland, Oregon. She writes, what does experiencing mourning over sin look like in relation to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4? And what does the comfort of God look like in relation to the words of the Lord? And I quote, my yoke is easy. So that is her question, Pastor Carl. Yeah, so the Sermon on the Mount, as Augustine first uh, dubbed it, it's called the Sermon on the Mount because it's given, uh, he's on the top of a high hill. And we actually know the actual place where this sermon took place. In fact, God willing, I'll be there next month and preaching in this very spot. And so uh, Jesus speaks about those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, uh, for they shall be comforted. He's talking about mourning over sin, people who are broken over sin. And that's really the first step in many ways to conversion. Remember the key word, I suppose you could say, or the key verse in the Sermon on the Mount is this, where Jesus said, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. And so he's talking about being a part of the kingdom, and he's actually, uh, in this um, group of people, there's a dual uh, emphasis. There are some people who know the Lord, and he's giving them instructions. There are people who don't know the Lord. There are people who know the Lord and have maybe some bad theology. They have Pharisaical teaching rooted because they were the key teachers, some 6,000 Pharisees during the day of Christ. And, and he blows them away when he makes a statement that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God for the simple reason that the, they were the religious folks of the day. If anyone was religious, if anyone was going to get into heaven, it was the scribes and the Pharisees. At least that was the um, common thinking of the day. And so what Jesus does is he tears apart their righteousness. You've heard it said, because this is what they would teach, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say over and over and over again. And he's um, underscoring uh, the fact that their righteousness is a fake righteousness, that they need conversion. And so there's a mourning that takes place when someone is truly converted. And what does it look like? Well, you know, people are wired differently emotionally. 
sometimes on Sunday nights when we have meet the pastor, there's a woman on Sunday night and her eyes were just overflowing with tears as she heard the gospel and that she could be forgiven. And there was a few other people there that I feel certain were converted and they didn't display the same emotion. Does that mean that they weren't saved? No, not at all. You think about the woman, of course, that uh, came. She was from an immoral background. Uh, it's described in Luke's gospel, the seventh chapter. And, and Simon, who's a Pharisee, says, hey, well, why, why are you letting a woman touch you in this way? And she's at the feet of the Lord Jesus, and she's just weeping. And with her hair, she she dries his feet. I think she feels embarrassed, maybe. And and Jesus said, he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. And so sometimes, you know, based on where a person is coming from, the mourning may express itself in different ways. But mourning is a mark of real conversion. It shows that someone is broken, that they are repentant in heart. And so that, that is something that you, you look for. And again, people are different emotionally. Uh, it's not a matter of how you, deeply you feel sorry for your sin. In fact, I would say that the deepest sorrow that Christians experience come after conversion. And so it's in that context that the Apostle Paul says to save people, that there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance uh, and sometimes it's after you're saved and you may even look back at your earlier life and you're just like, whoa, you're just broken because there's a new awareness of what your sin meant, what it looked like and how it broke the heart of God. But again, there is a mourning that takes place that can lead to repentance and the Lord can comfort you with that mourning. And so in the second half of your question, when the Lord says, my yoke is easy, He's using an agricultural illustration, of course, of the day, um, and he's underscoring that as you come to know the Lord, there's a, there's a real freedom that comes. You know, Satan offers people freedom every time he tempts them to sin, but their sin becomes basically a form of slavery. Uh, that's why Jesus said the man whose sins becomes the slave of sin. They think freedom is the ability to do what they want to do. In the New Testament, freedom is the ability to do that which you ought to do. And so you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And in this sense, the Lord's yoke is easy in the sense that it is freeing. It is a blessing. It is the best thing that can ever, ever happen to your life. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Bob out of Indiana, Pastor Carl. He writes, the Bible says that we all sin. What does sin really mean? He is the pastor of a church. All right. Well, it's a, it's a good question. People might think, well, you know, why, why are you a pastor of a church asking that? And I don't know how long he's been a pastor or the circumstances, but uh, what comes to my mind is Ephesians chapter 2. And it says, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And he uses two distinct Greek words, uh, one for a trespass, parapipto. It literally means a false step. And he uses the word hamatia, which means to miss the mark. And by the way, the word hamatia was an archery term in both in Hebrew and in Greek. And in Hebrew, it's the word kata. And in uh, Greek, it's 
hamatia. There's an adjective, there's a noun, there's a verb, hamatano, but it basically means to miss the mark. And so Paul, when he summarizes our life, says, not only do you fall short of the righteousness of God, you have willfully disobeyed God. You've taken false steps. And these are indications that you are dead spiritually. And this is why we need a Savior in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. So when you study the New Testament, if I remember, there's eight words in Hebrew that basically are descriptive of sinful behavior. In the New Testament, there's 12. So there's like kakos, that's a famous one. It refers to bad badness. It can be used in the physical realm. Most of the time it's used in the moral realm. There's the word guilty. There's the word to miss the mark. There's iniquity. There's transgressor. There's uh, going astray, falling away. There's all these different words that God uses in the New Testament. And I suppose you could say, well, sin is missing the mark. It's moral badness. It's rebellion. It's iniquity. It's going astray. It's wickedness. It's wandering. And you could certainly give a definition like that, and it would be maybe full. John simply says, and by the way, this pastor might be interested, we offer a course called Basic Discipleship, and we make it available to churches as long as they reproduce it exactly as it's written, and none of the copyrights are taken off. And so it's a 45-week discipleship course. And the second lesson in that series is maintaining fellowship with God. And the class begins, that session that usually takes three weeks, three or four weeks to cover, talks about what sin is, what sin is not, and then what we typically refer to as gray areas. There are some things that the Bible doesn't specifically address. It doesn't say that smoking a cigarette is wrong but there are principles that God gives within Scripture that would tell us, oh, smoking a cigarette is wrong because you're not to do anything that's destructive to the temple of God, and your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so there are principles, we look at four specifically, that govern those areas that are not necessarily spelled out in Scripture, but we can be discerning based on these principles that God gave as to whether maybe this behavior is sinful or not. But in that class, we cover 1 John 3, 4, which basically says sin is lawlessness. There's a very simple definition. Sin is lawlessness. And when we speak of lawlessness, it's just a defection from God's holy standards. Our kids at Community Bible Church, uh, if they go to Awana, they will learn sin is anything that you say, think, or do that's contrary to the will of God. I suppose that's not a bad definition of lawlessness. It might be something you think that's heinous and evil. It might be something that you say. It might be a hateful thought in your heart where you're like a murderer. It might be doing something literally like stealing. It might be telling a lie. These are all expressions of lawlessness. But sin ultimately is against you and you only, Lord, as David will say in Psalm 51. It's a violation against the character of God. It's, uh, and that's really brought out in Romans 3.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So he speaks of sin, again, hamatano, and then he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the glory of God is a picture of God's righteousness, of his holiness, 
of his, it's a reflection of who he is, of his character. So ultimately, sin can be defined as doing anything that's against the character of God. So it's a fair question. And again, I would maybe encourage you if you're a new young pastor, uh, you need some plan to disciple people. And even if you started taking the course yourself and teaching it from the pulpit, that might be a good starting place for your people. And again, you can call Search the Scriptures. They will give you some uh, information. The number is STS, one eight seven seven sts for Search the Scriptures, 7478. And you can tell them, I heard Pastor Carl talk about the discovery class or basic discipleship as it's described uh, online at Search the Scriptures. There's handouts, there's messages you can listen to so you can fill in the blanks and then you could teach them or you could lead a class. It'd be a great Wednesday night series. You'd have enough material that would last you a year if you have a midweek service. Anyway, let's go to the next uh, question. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes in as anonymous. They write, I was recently divorced by a spouse who is an unbeliever. What do the scriptures say about me pursuing remarriage to my spouse since I am a Christian? Should I pursue remarriage with an unbelieving spouse or not? Obviously, we would be unequally yoked, so I'm not sure what's, what God's word would have me do in this situation. If my former spouse wants to remarry again as an unbeliever, should we get back together? Yes, you should do everything in your power to get back together with the one caveat, as long as you and the children are not physically endangered. I know today people say, well, I leave, I've left him because he's abusive. Well, tell me how he was abusive. Well, he's just so ugly in terms of the language he uses. Okay, that's a terrible thing when a husband derides his wife and is unkind towards her. But is that a reason to leave? I think not. You know, there is a sense in which the Bible teaches we should suffer unjustly, So there's obviously some room for some kind of discord in a marriage in 1 Peter 3, in the same way you wives, in the same way as what, is is in the same way as Jesus Christ, who he just illustrated. In fact, he... He's illustrated on three different realms. Submit yourself to the Lord's sake to every institution, not just to those who are great governments, but to those who treat you unfairly. Then he'll say, servants, be submissive to your masters, not just to those who are great masters, but to those who are crummy masters. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and you're harshly treated and you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it and you patiently endure, this finds favor with God. And then he illustrates with Christ, for you've been called for this purpose, to do what? To suffer unjustly. Since Christ suffered for you and he left you an example to follow. And if there is anyone who ever suffered unjustly, because we can sometimes think about situations and we say, well, he's 99% wrong and I'm 1% wrong. Well, you're at least 1% wrong. You got to own that. But Jesus was never wrong. If there was anyone who ever suffered unjustly, it was Jesus because he was sinless. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And yet he entrusted himself to God in the same way, 3-1. Remember, the chapter divisions are artificial. You wives be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So um, there are times, though, Paul, I just turned to 1 Corinthians 7, 
And he deals with, beginning in 7.1, with questions they wrote about it. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote. And so in 7.1, almost through the end of the book, he begins ticking off their questions and answering them. And so he says in 8.1, but I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. He's talking about single people who may have thought it was more spiritual to stay single their whole life. And Paul's point is, only if God has equipped you to be single your whole life. And there are some people, as he'll argue later in the chapter, they're able to give undistracted devotion to the work of the kingdom, verse 35. Why? Because they're single. But most people, God has wired to be married. And so he then says, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And this is in deference to what he'll say in verse 12, but to the rest, I say not the Lord. In other words, first he says, I'm giving instructions, but it's not really me. This is an issue Jesus addressed, not I, but the Lord. But in verse 12, he'll say, but to the rest, I say not the Lord. In other words, this is not a subject that Jesus addressed, but I'm speaking on his behalf as his apostle with the exact same authority. And so to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife if the shoe's on the other foot. So he's saying, if there's a time to leave and maybe he's beating you up, maybe he's a drunkard and he's abusive to the children. Uh, maybe he's potentially bringing disease into your body because he's immoral. And you say, husband, I- I'm, I'm leaving, um, but I'm not getting remarried because I made a vow to you until death separate us, and so I am not going to remarry. Now, you may have jumped through the hoops where you have a legal divorce in your hand, but God is clear. If she does leave, she must remain unmarried. Why? Because that's what Jesus taught when he spoke on the subject of divorce and remarried. So either be unmarried or be reconciled to your husband. And sometimes when a wife draws a line in the sand and says, look, if you're serious, you've made all these promises to me. And every time you make the promise and you'll say, I'll be different. And I come back, you just break it again. And she's despaired and she's lost all hope. Well, you draw a line in the sand and and you, you make it clear that, look, this is going to be a planned separation. We're going to get marriage counseling during this time. And here are some non-negotiables. Does he have to be converted? No, because you made an original covenant to him. Maybe you made it in disobedience where you um, knew he was lost and you thought, I'll marry him anyway because I love him and hopefully he'll get saved. It doesn't mean that that was not God's ultimate will for you to marry him. But because you married him in the wrong timing, uh, you willfully sinned. Or it may be that you got married, and then after you got married, you got saved. And that's one of the issues, no doubt, that Paul is addressing here, because they could have easily have come to a conclusion, maybe because we're unequally yoked, something that 2 Corinthians 6 says, don't pursue marriage with an unbeliever that we should do what Ezra says, which was a unique setting and an example. And Paul says, no, stick together. In fact, he'll go on to say, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him. Hey, he provides for the kids. Certainly he's not born again. He doesn't think the way we think. 
as a, a wife and maybe some of my children who have met the Lord. Uh, he doesn't want to go to church, but he consents to live with me. He's a hard worker. He's a provider. And where you can show respect for him in front of the children, you should do everything you can to build him up and to submit to his authority, unless, of course, he asks you to do something contrary to the Lord. Your submission is in the Lord. And she consents to live with him. He must not divorce her. Uh, And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. Why? Because or for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. He's just reminding them that your children are set apart by the believing spouse. It doesn't mean they're saved. Uh, It doesn't mean that he is saved. No one can get saved for anyone else, but God can put his blessing on the children through the believer that is walking with the Lord. And again, when you go back to 1 Peter 3 and couple the truths there in the first six or seven verses, and I have a whole message on that, you might want to get the Search the Scriptures app and listen to the message on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. It will help you as a woman living with an unbeliever. You might also want to listen to my wife's series called Following Fallen Men. That's also can be found at Search the Scriptures or Mothering from the Heart. That would be a great series for you to listen to where you can get some help and some encouragement. But your goal is not to get married. That goal is an impossibility if he divorces you and then he remarries and you can't be reconciled. But right now there is a possibility for reconciliation even if the government says you're divorced. You say, well, I've got this certificate here and the judge says you're divorced and God's got his marriage certificate in heaven. He says, no, you're not. What God has joined together, no man is to separate. Anyway, it's a good question. I hope that helps. Again, listen to 1 Peter 3, the message there uh, at searchthescriptures.org or download the app and maybe listen to this series, Following Fallen Men. It would be a great series my wife did in teaching women and helping women to win their unbelieving husbands or their disobedient husbands into obedience. Well, this has been... A quick hour, it seems, and it's gone. But God willing, we will be back next Tuesday for the Bible line. Thank you for joining us today.